Sean Greenhalgh faked paintings, sculptures and artifacts worth up to £10 million from the garden shed of the council house in Bolton he shared with his elderly parents. In total, the conspiracy secured them around £850,000. Using elaborate cover stories thought up after painstaking historical research, the family who lived off stake benefits fooled experts across the world into believing that they had inherited valuables and famous works. Many of the fakes were ancient or missing pieces lost to history. This generated much excitement in the art world. They persuaded experts from some of the country's most famous museums, such as the British Museum and the Tate Modern, as well as auction houses, Bohems, Christie's and Sotheby's, into paying hundreds and thousands of pounds. Their most audacious and successful con was recreating a 3,300-year-old Egyptian statue called the Armana Princess, which they sold for almost £440,000. He set about carefully crafting this sculpture using basic DIY tools and making it look old by coating it with a mixture of clay and tea. Fantastic. When arrested, he said he had knocked it up in three weeks. This example shows us, doesn't it, uh, maybe in a, a, a quite a, a stark way, uh, that uh, it's not easy to see what is fake, whether it's money or whether it's paintings or whether it's even maybe jewellery. You can get really good fake diamonds these days, can't you? Maybe, ladies, you are sat there now with a diamond and it's not real. To see if something is real or not, we might need to look at the characteristics. We might need to look for the signature. We might look at the hallmark or the watermark to see if it's real or not or whether it's a fake. Well, this afternoon, we're going to uh, take a look at what Paul has to say about the hallmark, the trademark, if you like, the characteristics of the Christian, of the Christian life. But before we just dive into this text, I just want us to understand a little bit about the background and the context of this letter that we've read. It's clear from verse 1 that this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Now, he didn't found the church in Colossae, but rather the church probably came into being while Paul was in in Ephesus, some 100 miles away. And two men from Colossae, Epaphras and Philemon, they came to him and through his ministry became Christians. And through the further ministry of Epaphras, Colossae and the surrounding area heard the message of salvation and they became Christians. Philemon later hosted the Colossian church in his house. So even though Paul had never been to Colossae, he had a deep interest in the church. And it's against this backdrop that Paul hears of difficulties and problems that have arisen. False teachers were seeking to add to and twist 
the message of the gospel, saying that Jesus and the gospel is not enough. Uh, You must add something to it. And there are many ways out there that people can add to the gospel. You must do this or that, or you you may need to have some further special knowledge or some special experience. Now, we don't know exactly what this false teaching was, and that's not actually important. But what is important is that we see Paul urging Christians at Colossae to remain in Christ and nothing else. What is important is how Paul helps the Colossian Christians and us to avoid adding to the gospel. So in this letter, Paul aims to hold before them the the majesty and the absolute sufficiency of Jesus. Paul is urging them to remain in Christ and Christ alone. He shows them and he shows us in this letter the wonder of Jesus and the gospel. That's the purpose. He wants them to see afresh the glory of God, the lasting effect that the gospel has. The key verse to this letter is in chapter 2 and verse 6, and it says this, Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him. He doesn't want any confusion because he knows that confusion leads to doubt and doubt leads to despair. And so Paul sets the record straight by showing them the supremacy of Jesus Christ, both in his person and also in his work. And so it's against this that we look this afternoon at the opening words of what is contained here in these first 14 verses from Paul. And as we look at this passage, I want us to see two things. I want us to see, firstly, the hallmark of the saving grace of God in verses 1 to 8. The hallmark, the evidence of a genuine work of God. And the second thing I want us to see is the hallmark of living by grace. The hallmark, the evidence of a continued work of God. Paul's opening greetings follows the normal pattern of his letters to other churches and other individuals. After stating his authority for speaking to the Colossians because he is an apostle, a messenger of God, he calls them in verse 2, holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. He refers to them as holy, holy ones, those who are set apart They lived in relationship to Jesus by faith. They were faithful brothers and sisters because they were in Christ. And after identifying them in this way, what follows is a summary of Paul's prayers for them. How he gave thanks for them and what he was asking for them. And in doing so, he points to the clear evidence, the hallmark of the saving grace of God at work in their lives. Now, Paul could simply have written to them and said, now, now listen up, I just want to say this once, once and for all, you're saved and that is it, you're saved by the work of God, full stop, that's it, end of story. 
but rather he wants to encourage them, encourage them of the reality of their salvation. And so he he explains that the first hallmark is shown in verse 4, where he says, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. It is not just some vague faith in this or that. It's not just some philosophy of life. It's not just some wishy-washy faith, but it is a personal faith, a trust in a person, that of Jesus. It is a confident trust that God came into the world in the person of his son. It is a confident trust, a faith that looks to the perfect Jesus bearing the judgment of God at the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus to make payment for sins. It's the resurrection of Jesus to overcome sin and death and so enable that link between us and God to exist. But notice that this faith is noticeable. It is the kind of faith that others see and talk about. Word gets out about this kind of faith. Paul has heard about it. Paul continues. He says the second hallmark of their salvation is also seen in the love they have for all God's people. Do you see that in verse 4? It's a sign that God is at work. Last week we saw that the Apostle Peter called Christians to have a deep, sincere love from the heart. That was to be part of their identity. And Paul calls the same here. Life in the first century was probably no different in many ways to life here in the 21st century. Just as in Colossae. We see people focusing on getting on, on doing well, maybe financially, building their little empire. We all live to some degree in, in an individualistic world, a world where, where we try to be as self-sufficient as we can. We live relatively insular lives, don't we? And this leaves little time for other people. Maybe unless it gives us some personal gain for ourselves. But what Paul is saying is something different. Even in the midst of such a culture of a society, we see a picture of sacrificial love one for another. Those who love Christ love those who are like him and belong to him. And so all differences disappear, whether we're rich or whether we're poor whether we're educated or whether we're not, whether we're people from all different colors or backgrounds, all different walks of life, we are one in Christ. One in principle, in the same, with the same hope, having the same temptations to face, with the same devil to resist, the same heaven to await us. And so the same love, one to another. Paul is saying to the church at Colossae and to you and to me that love for our brothers and sisters, it is a sign, it is a hallmark of true faith, of the saving grace of God. That is not all. 
Paul doesn't finish here. He continues in verse 5. Look with me. The, the faith and love that springs from the hope stored up for you in heaven. The reason for their faith and love is hope. Why is this so? Well, this is not some form of wishful thinking, but it's an expectation, waiting for that which is certain, waiting for that which is definite. People without God are without hope, and so they are concerned about their mortality. They're concerned about their health and their wealth. And as people get older, and we all get older, and death seems to be that much closer, we are confronted more vividly with the absence of hope. Whereas people who believe and trust in God are able to move away from the issues of life and death and see the reality of an eternal world that lies ahead. Now, I'm not saying that we in some way are protected from bereavement and grief and all that that brings with it. Not at all. But Christians, Christians are able to see by the grace of God an eternal perspective. There is a change of attitude which is not shaped by the world around, not shaped by the mortgage that we have to pay or the career ladder or the pursuit of health and beauty, whatever it is, but rather a confidence in the eternal life that we have secured by the saving grace of God. So the call from Paul here is the same call to us all. To refocus our sight this afternoon on the saving work of God through his one and only son, Jesus Christ. So far we've seen that true believers are given faith in Christ, love for their brothers and sisters, and a hope that is stored up in heaven. And Paul now continues with a wonderful description of the good news of salvation. In highlighting the hallmark of salvation, he shows that it is a work of God and nothing more, nothing less. This is genuine Christianity. And so Paul continues at the end of verse 5 by saying that we have received the gospel and describes it as the true message. In other words, be confident, be encouraged because you have heard the truth. It's not opinions or ideas. It's not philosophies. It's not a fairy tale or an imagination, but it's the truth. And it's the truth that is unchanging from one generation to the next, from one decade to the other and so on. And this is what the church at Colossae needed to hear. And, and this is what we all need to hear. There is one truth and it is found in the gospel. It's not found in some special further knowledge. It's not found in doing this or that ritual or religious act it's not following all different types of rules. And Paul goes on further, and most importantly, how is it truth? How can it change lives? How can it make us right with God? Well, he goes on in verse 6 and says this. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing 
among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. This truth is God's grace. That is the true message. God's free favor. God giving us what we do not deserve. It is the pleasure of a merciful God giving us salvation in spite of his just judgment on our sin through his son. The sin, the wrong in our lives. It is God being pleased to place his judgment on his son Jesus in our place. This is the truth. It's not man-made. It's not the innovation of man, but it is fully and only and completely of God. This again links back to last week in 1 Peter, where Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world to be the plan of salvation. This is what the Colossians needed to hear. This is what we all need to hear. So we've seen that Paul has given thanks to God. Thanks for the saving grace seen in the lives of the believers in Colossae. He now continues to pray for their continued living by the grace of God. Remember the key verse that I mentioned, chapter 2, verse 6? In effect, Paul says, having received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live with Christ Jesus as Lord. And at the start of this letter, Paul continues in verse 9 to say that he and others have been praying for this. And through his prayer, we see the hallmark, the evidence of living by grace. Verse 9, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, remember he's never been to Colossae, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, on the face of it, it seems a little bit strange that Paul prays for knowledge. Do you see that in verse 9? He's praying for knowledge. He could have prayed for unity in the church. It's a massive issue. He could have prayed for boldness. After all, they're there as Christians in Colossae in an alien world to them. He could have prayed for blessings from God. So why does Paul pray for knowledge? Well, as mentioned at the outset, the church was being told by others both around and from within that you needed to add to the gospel. Christ Jesus plus special knowledge, special experience, etc., whatever. So Paul understandably prays that they would be filled with the right knowledge, knowledge of God's will through all wisdom and understanding given by the Spirit. In other words, he is confronting the issue head on. Uh, Paul prays for wisdom and understanding that is spiritual. Paul knows that spiritual knowledge is foundational to the Christian life. It's a hallmark. We shouldn't be ignorant. You and I, 
We shouldn't be contented to be ignorant or say that the study of the Bible or the pursuit of God's will and an understanding of God isn't for me. We should all desire to think and understand about God in a more deeper and fuller way. We should all ask questions. We should all seek answers. We should all be trying to work out what God is saying to us individually and collectively as a body of believers. And so Paul's request, in effect, is reduced to one thing, the knowledge of God's will. God-centered, God's plan, God's agenda, letting God be God in our lives. This is the hallmark of living by the grace of God. And so the rest of the prayer just, just flows out from this. And so Paul continues in verse 10, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father. You can feel, can't you, the words being used here. It's all embracing. It's all encompassing as we are filled with God's will. It literally affects everything. So just for our last few minutes, let's have a look at the aspects of this in our lives. Firstly, Paul says it's a worthy life. Do you see that? Worthy of the Lord, pleasing God in every way, having a deep knowledge of God that should profoundly affect our lives. This knowledge isn't some academic exercise. It shouldn't give us some superior feelings over others. It shouldn't cause us to gloat about how wonderful our Bible and religious knowledge is, somehow making us feel somehow more pious and holier than thou. That's not what Paul is asking for here. No, this knowledge should cause growth. Growth which produces a conduct worthy of the Lord. Pleasing Him in all respects. And what is the outworking of this? Paul says, bearing fruit in every good work. As we live amongst and with others in our community, at work, in the home, people that we come into contact with should see the reality of a life in Christ. This is a hallmark. It should make us different. It should make us distinctive. Or as we were looking at last week, it's part of our identity. Secondly, Paul says, it's a growing life. But growing in what? Growing in knowledge. Here we have it again, knowledge. What's this about? Again. Well, Paul is describing a circle, or, or more specifically, I think, a spiral. In effect, he's, he's showing that as we bear fruit in every good work, then we will naturally cause us to be growing in our knowledge of God. And the more we serve, the more we know of Him. And the more we know of Him, the more we serve. It's a spiral effect, or if you like, it's a cause and effect relationship between knowing and serving. 
And so we shouldn't simply find the truth, consume the knowledge, and sit in our chairs vegetating. We should act on that truth. Thirdly, Paul says, it is a powerful life. Paul calls for us being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. The power referred to here is immense. It's God's power. Someone wrote, it is a colossal power for a Colossian church. And that's the same for us, isn't it? It's God's glorious might. And the focus, the effect of this power is endurance and patience. You see, the Colossian church, they needed these two qualities. They faced people trying to destroy the church, trying to twist the gospel, trying to water down the work of Jesus Christ, trying to add to it. They faced living in a society that was far from godly, where moral standards, where lifestyles, the way of life had a lot to be desired. And so they needed endurance, endurance to continue in the face of this. They needed to persevere, to keep going. They needed patience. Patience with people within the church and those on the outside. And just like the Colossian Christians, we too face the same struggles, don't we? We have the same circumstances, the same difficult people that we have to deal with. And so we need this patience. We need the endurance that Paul is praying for here. We too need the endurance and patience. And these qualities can only come by being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. So the hallmark of a grace-filled life is a worthy life pleasing God. It's a growing life, growing in knowledge, and it's a powerful life, able to endure with patience. And finally, Paul says, as we are filled with the knowledge of his will, we will live a thankful life. Why is this? How is it that Christians can give thanks? On what basis can they give thanks? Well, look at what Paul says in these last few verses. These are amazing, powerful verses, verses 12 to 14. They're amazing words. We can be thankful because God has qualified us. He's made us fit, verse 12. Fit for what? To share in an inheritance, a present inheritance of being in Christ and a future inheritance of heaven. So we can be thankful. Thankful because God has rescued us. Verse 13. Rescued us from what? Rescued us from the dominion of darkness, the grip of the devil, and into his own kingdom. Thankful because, verse 14, we have redemption. We've been redeemed. Redeemed from what? Redeemed from sin. We are forgiven people. The price has been paid for our sin. We've been set free. It's an amazing crescendo to this prayer that Paul gives here. 
Paul's message is clear to the Colossians. Do not look around and be pulled by this and that. Don't listen to those who seek to deceive you. Don't think that you need to add to the work of Christ. It is finished, completed. Rather, you know the truth. You've heard it. You've received the truth. You have the hallmarks of the saving grace of God. So live in the light of this. Live with the hallmarks of God's grace. Having received Christ Jesus as Lord, live with Christ Jesus as Lord. May that be all of our prayers.